0: Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About.
1: Humility is not so much about thinking little of oneself, but instead is really about thinking of oneself very little. It's about self forgetfulness. It's recognizing that what matters is promoting the good, promoting the good of others and promoting our own good, but promoting the good. And the role that we per se play in it isn't all that important. It's about the good, not about us.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Snock Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Mariana Orlandi, Associate Director of the Institute. And once again, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Melissa Muscala, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America, MacDonald Distinguished Fellow in the Center for Study of Law and Religion at Emory University School of Law, and Fellow of our very own Austin: Institute. Good morning, Melissa.
1: Good morning. It's a pleasure to be talking to you again.
0: Yeah, this is the third time, am I correct, that we have you on our show? I think that's right. I honestly I continue to hope that you will be here again and again. I'll continue asking. I'll just continue to hope that you will always say yes as you very <laughs> kindly did. I know that right now you were losing track of time because you were writing something, so I'm sorry that I interrupted your work, but it is for a good cause. I think that by recording this episode, we're actually keeping a promise we made to our audience last time you were on when we referenced a talk that you had recently given on humility. Right. So as I asked you that time, if you wanted to talk about that, you said yes. And so I kept you to that promise. And so I'm very happy that that's what we're going to do. So just as a background information on this and on this talk, you gave this talk for a conference that was organized by the Religious Freedom Institute, correct?
1: Right. And the University of Chicago Divinity School.
0: Yeah, so I know that the conference title was What Happened to Virtue, to Common Good, and Pluralism, Teaching from Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Right. So before we get started on humility, your take, what happened to virtue? What happened to virtue in general? That's
1: quite the question. Yes. Well, I mean, the context of this particular conference was, you know, to think about how these three major world religions think about the virtues and then you know why these virtues are so important always, but especially in our current political and cultural climate of polarization. So, I mean, I think in terms of the current climate, I mean, we've just gotten into a terrible, vicious cycle of leaving aside all, all civility, all, all virtue, all kind of basic forms of human courtesy. And demonizing other people, in part because of the way that our conversations are now so mediated through, you know, digital platforms that tend to dehumanize them. It's so much easier to think about your ideological opponent as somehow not human, or forgetting that they also are people with convictions, presuming that they have goodwill, recognizing that they have feelings, that they have family, that they have a reputation, that they have a right to maintain. Right. All of those things which have always been challenged in difficult public controversies, but at least there was some attempt to respect them. Now that all of that's just gone out the window when the humanity of our opponents has been hidden from us behind these social media platforms.
0: Yeah, so the assumption we when we have this question is that what we see, and at least I think this is a shared view of you and of myself and I hope of most of our audience, is that what we see in the public arena is not a virtuous society. So we do not take that surface courtesy or the lack of, you know, the trigger warnings and not using certain words as a real virtuosity of the discussion. But at least what we see, what you see is a word that has lost virtue in the capacity to deal with how we deal with each other. But before we get, again, you will focus on humility and I am eager to listen you talk about that, but which are the virtues? Because, before we get into the discussion, I know that, for instance, Aquinas has his own catalog of virtue and he divides them in acquired virtues and infused virtue. But could we say that there is an accepted list of virtues? What is it anything that, you know, is kindness a virtue? Is honesty a virtue? What defines a virtue? How do we decide what is a virtue?
1: So, virtues generally are understood to be qualities of character that perfect us as human beings in some way that perfect some aspect of our personality or some capacity that we have, and that help us to act in morally upright ways. And you know there are different catalogues of virtue, but broadly speaking, people do tend to accept that something like what are often referred to as the four cardinal virtues, prudence or practical wisdom, temperance or moderation, fortitude or courage, and justice are kind of core virtues and you could add others but they tend to follow under the umbrella of one of those core virtues and the reason why those four have been singled out in the classical tradition is that they correspond to different aspects of our human capacities, right? So The virtue of prudence or practical wisdom is a perfection of our practical reasoning capacity, our ability to deliberate and reason about how to act. And, you know, of course, there are so many blind spots that we might have, so many difficulties that we might encounter in preventing us from making good moral decisions. And so this is a virtue that perfects us intellectually, right, with our reasoning capacity to be able to make reliably good moral decisions, right? So that's one aspect, the kind of intellectual aspect of virtue that requires, you know, getting the moral judgment right. Then there's the recognition that very often in the moral life, what leads us to go astray and even leads us to make bad judgments is not so much intellectual error, but... A distortion of reasoning that is the result of our desires run amok, right? And so, you know, we know how easy it is to rationalize wrong action because we just really feel like doing something or really feel like not doing something that we kind of know we should do. And so, two of those other virtues—the the virtue of temperance or moderation, and the virtue of fortitude or courage—they're looking at the different ways in which. Our emotions, our desires, our sub rational desires can prevent us from engaging in fully rational practical reasoning. So the classical virtue of temperance moderates our desire for pleasure so that there's nothing wrong with that desire, but it needs to be governed in accordance with reason because sometimes we seek pleasures and we're drawn to pleasures that are in fact bad for us. Or sometimes we're drawn to pleasures and comforts in ways that prevent us from doing the things that we ought to do because they're unpleasant, right? And likewise, the the virtue of fortitude deals with our emotional reactions to situations that cause us fear or to obstacles in pursuit of the good, right? So the, the kind of paradigm of fortitude or courage is the person willing to die in battle or, you know, in the Christian realm, the paradigm of that virtue would be the martyr, right, willing to die for his or her faith, and when we know that often doing the right thing requires, I mean, not usually for us literal facing death, but it often requires facing death to self in small ways. It requires certainly in the, in the current climate, if anybody wants to speak the truth on any number of controversial issues, enormous courage is required to face the death of reputation that could very easily result from that. Could face the loss of job or the loss of reputation and prestige, the loss of friends. So all of those things and in many others are very real challenges that we need the virtue of fortitude or courage to be able to face. And then lastly, the virtue of justice, which is orienting our actions when they relate to other people. So justice is usually defined as you know giving to each what is due, right? And so justice perfects the will, which is... It's an appetite, just like those appetites that lead us to desire pleasure or to fear pain and difficulty, but it's the appetite of reason, right? So the will is reason's appetite. The will doesn't need to be moderated the way that our desires for pleasure do, because the will is always going to be aimed at a genuine good as recognized by reason. But what where the will needs help, if you will, and needs perfecting through virtue is in giving equal weight to everybody's good because so often we can be partial to our own good, unreasonably prioritizing our own good over others or unreasonably prioritizing the good of those we like or care about over those more distant to us. Then there is, I say, unreasonable prioritization because obviously there can be reason to prioritize oneself or one's family, for instance, over strangers but not reason to the extent that for instance you would you know violate somebody else's rights for the sake of your own good or or your family's good or completely ignore concerns about the welfare of distant people because you're just selfishly focused on goods for yourself and those that you care about so justice involves that full openness to the recognition that the good is good for everybody and that I am called to promote and protect the good for all human beings, not just for myself and those near and dear to me.
0: Yeah. And as you said, these are the cardinal virtues. And these are, if I'm not wrong, these are the acquired virtues. So they don't need the intervention for, in the the tradition of Aquinas, they don't need to be given as a gift from God. And it's that that's not the case for faith, open charity, as the three infused virtue. But so if the four cardinal virtues are, you know, available to anyone and they're just right. a fruit of does humility fall into any of this four where is the, where is the place of humility in this in this catalog
1: so humility tends to get categorized as a species of temperance or moderation aquinas talks about humility as moderating the desire to achieve great goods in accordance with right reason. It's actually the twin virtue of humility is, I think many people would be surprised by this, the twin virtue of humility or the flip side of humility is magnanimity, which is the greatness of soul that spurs us on to the reasonable pursuit of greatness, despite difficulties. And again, reasonable is always the operative word here. So humility doesn't mean eschewing the possibilities to achieve great goods that we have, if those are reasonable, if those are actually within our reach. What humility is, is, is a moderation, according to reason, of that desire to achieve great goods, as well as a, a moderation of the things that often accompany the achievement of great goods, namely the, the kind of esteem and honor and so on that tends to go along with that.
0: So would you say that one of the reasons humility is not very much practiced today and is not even famous. I guess something that we should be practicing because we have a misunderstanding of what it actually is.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, humility has really gotten a very, very bad rap. I mean, Nietzsche famously criticizes humility as part of the, you know, what he considers to be the Judeo-Christian slave morality, which turned, you know, the master morality, quote unquote, of the Greeks on its head. And even Aristotle saw humility not as a virtue, but as a shortcoming, opposed to magnanimity, which for him is the crown of the moral virtues. But in part, that's because Aristotle and Aquinas are defining humility differently. So Aristotle thought about humility as a kind of unreasonable assessment, failure to recognize uh, one's own talents and capacities. right? Whereas for Aquinas, a failure to recognize one's true talents and to use them to achieve goods, to achieve the good, that wouldn't be true humility, that would be cowardice, and that would be a failure of virtue. So true humility is actually not opposed in the Christian tradition to the virtue of of magnanimity, which spurs us on to pursue great
0: goods. And what is the opposite of humility? So the opposite of humility
1: is pride, which would be a kind of excessive desire for excellence. But I think one thing that's really important in properly interpreting the Christian virtue of humility and also the vice of pride is recognizing that these virtues are primarily virtues governing our relationships, not to other human beings, but to God. Right? So humility is really founded on a recognition of the truth that we are creatures, that we are not God, and that all the good that we're capable of, and indeed our existence Itself are unmerited gifts from God. So their humility doesn't involve a denial that we've received great gifts, but it requires recognizing that we ought not to take credit for those gifts because they're gifts, they come from God, right? That this is the attitude that Saint Paul reflects in his letter to the Corinthians, where you know he says, What do you have that you have not received? Right? Everything is a gift. So you know, a painting doesn't become proud because you know somebody provides a compliment. It's the artist who ought to be proud, right? So we are God's handiwork. Any greatness that we're capable of achieving, well, involves cooperation with God on our part. It's really due to the fact that God has given us the many gifts that we have, including the gift of our very existence.
0: If that is the case, I want to ask you more things that might, you know, we might need to jump back and forth on this topic. But if humility is a virtue that we have towards God and it starts from the premise that we are creatures. How can we preach it? How can we exercise it in a word that has difficulties accepting this? And could we say, you know, that one of the root causes of having lost virtue is that people find it now difficult to recognize that the preamble of the declaration, like created equal, right? It's Right. They find it difficult to recognize that that is a true sentence and that we can't skip it.
1: Right. Well, I think that's a really important point. And it goes to something that Aquinas explains, which I think is very important, where he says that humility does not imply that we ought to be submissive toward others with regard to that which is merely human in them. But it does require a kind of reverence toward others with regard to that which is of God in them. And so if we recognize that. All humans are creatures of God. All humans are made in the image of and likeness of God. There is always something in them which is of God and which therefore demands our reverence and respect, right? And so humility is also, while not primarily focused on relations with others, does have that important implication that we do need to treat with respect all other human beings, precisely because all other human beings are also God's handiwork.
0: I understand that the example of humility for Christians comes from the example of Christ. No figure that is more humble than him and is dying on a cross. But like how about the other religions? Do they have examples of humility? Because
1: that's a very good question. I mean, I think obviously Christianity has, as you say, the, the extraordinary example of, you know, Christ, who, you know, as St. Paul put it, you know, humbled himself even to death on the cross, right? The most ignominious humiliating and excruciating a kind of death that one could imagine. But nonetheless, other religions do also have a similar count of humility as requiring this kind of awareness of our dependence on God as creatures and of the kind of utter transcendence of God. And so our need to bow before him in reverence, right? Recognition that we are not God, that we are creatures. And so that's something that is certainly in common. And one thing that was clear throughout all of the panels at the conference was just how much these three traditions have in common in terms of their understanding of the human virtues, including humility.
0: Yeah, it sounds like this reverence you know, simply comes from the having accepted and sharing the idea that we are not the fruit as creatures. We're not the fruit of the capricious will of the Greek gods that just decide, you know, but fruits of love. So we've been created by a loving God, whatever we want to call it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. The recognition of a creation from a good and loving God and of our status as creatures is something that all of these three traditions have in common. And that is, you know, extremely important for recognizing really the meaning of all of the, the virtues in the moral life, but including humility.
0: And where do you think that wrong understanding? Because I know that humility is not it's not very welcome, even in a work environment. You know, people like to talk very highly of themselves and you say, you know, you should be humble. You're like misunderstood. Where do you think that this wrong understanding of what humility actually is came from?
1: Well, I think the wrong understanding derived from certain practices of Christian asceticism where, you know, for instance, in the monastic tradition in particular, there are a number of practices of kind of submission to others, blind obedience, you know, physical postures like kneeling or bowing one's head before others, public confession of one's faults before the community, things like that. And But these were ascetical practices, a kind of spiritual calisthenics that were trying to, you know, if you will, bend the stick in the opposite direction and recognition of human nature's very stubborn tendency toward pride and also practices that were attempting to imitate the extreme humility of Christ. But again, you know, just like physical exercise, these spiritual practices could be taken to the extreme or even you know, ironically done in a vain and ostentatious way. Right? So they do have their role, but they don't represent the essence of the virtue. And that, I think, is the source of misunderstandings of what this Christian virtue really
0: means. And what do you think, Melissa, that is a way to cultivate this, like nowadays? Like, how can we cultivate humility?
1: Well, there are so many ways in daily life. Obviously, prayer and worship, which are a recognition of our status as creatures, our dependence on God, our debt to him, our duty to worship him because he's God, but also, you know, Gratitude is perhaps one of the greatest manifestations of humility, so opposed to a kind of culture of entitlement, right? Instead, recognizing everything that we have is a gift and really counting our blessings and expressing gratitude to God and to the other people who do so many wonderful things for us on a day-to-day basis. Those are expressions of humility and ways to cultivate humility. And of course, service to others, recognizing that in serving others, we are serving God. Those are all excellent ways to grow in humility. In a way, humility is not so much about thinking little of oneself, but instead is really about thinking of oneself very little. It's about self-forgetfulness. It's recognizing that what matters is promoting the good, promoting the good of others and promoting our own good, but promoting the good. And the role that we per se play in it isn't all that important. It's about the good, not about us.
0: And you mentioned earlier, we were talking about a conversation and also, you know, the public arena, and I think we were about to touch on the social media and that environment. And you have an interesting take on humility and social media and what's the relationship between the two. So do you mind saying something about that?
1: Right. Well, you know, one of the huge dangers in the moral life, which humility is meant to help correct, is that our desire for recognition or success or self-aggrandizement would deflect us from what really matters, namely, as I said, pursuing the good. And this distortion is clearly seen in the effects of social media on people's attitudes and behavior. And what I say here is, is basically stolen from some excellent talks that Bishop Robert Barron has given this topic where you know he points out how social media has led to a kind of distancing of ourselves from reality. So instead of being focused on the activity that we're engaged in and the point of that activity. Instead, we're constantly looking at ourselves in the mirror, constantly aware of ourselves and how we're being perceived or will be perceived once we post about it on social media. So we go through life as if we were always on stage, always playing to an audience. And so look at life through this distorted glass of our ego. And this distorts our motivations and our choices. So instead of choosing what to do on the basis of what will actually be genuinely conducive to the good for ourselves and for others, our choices can be irrationally distorted by considerations of how what we're going to do will be perceived by others, either in person or increasingly on social media.
0: Yeah, and it's something, it's probably unique of our times, because like, if I think of the past, I can think that maybe one would have, you know, pursued a particular career or a particular degree in order to be loved or liked by someone, but it would be a long-term goal. It would not be like every constant second of my life deciding what to wear and where to spend my Sunday afternoon based on what people will think when they see this picture. But A, is this unique? Is this something that never happened before? And B, do you see it in your students? Because my fear is that this distracts also from The work of studying and reading and being very committed to a scholarly work that requires us to be like completely unaware, basically, of ourselves.
1: Right. I mean, absolutely. I mean, this isn't unique in the sense that vanity and pride have distorted our motivations. You know, from the beginning of human history, people have always done things irrationally, you know, because they want to be seen and want to look good or feared doing things that they ought to do because they, you know, didn't want to look bad or uh, to lose popularity. So you know, this, this isn't entirely new, but the the scale of it, the fact that every single action is potentially public in a way that has never been possible in the past, means that the the level of and range of the distortion of our activities is just unprecedented. right? I mean, in the past, you had to go out of your house <laughs> to be seen, right? But now, You can post pictures of anything that you're doing from the privacy of your home, and people are living and even if they don't post everything, they're living and acting with the sense of, oh, what could I post on social media? Oh, I can make this for dinner, and then I can post it on social media and impress my friends with my culinary skill, or I can do this silly thing and post a video, or I can wear this thing and post it on social media, and people will see, you know, how great my fashion sense is, or you know, everything right from our innermost thoughts to the most, you know unimportant choices uh, take on this sense of having a stage. And, and I do think that this, in a multitude of ways, distracts from the kind of attitude that is required for the pursuit of truth on the part of students and scholars and really any, you know, any human being who want to be concerned with the, the pursuit of truth. I mean, it, it does this because the fear of being called out for having the wrong, quote unquote, wrong ideas or having one's reputation ruined It's so much stronger because the ease with which that happens on social media is unprecedented. I mean, you can ruin a person's reputation almost instantly with a bunch of negative posts on Twitter or Facebook and so on in ways that just couldn't happen before. And your words can be taken out of context and posted on social media when they weren't meant to be taken in that vein or really weren't meant for a public audience. So all of these things are dangerous that I think lead to a lot of self-censorship. I mean, I see that students definitely self-censor in the classroom much more than they used to for fear that what they're going to say will be taken
0: wrongly. And could we say that there is a combination? On the one hand, it's a good reason, first, like an understandable reason, the self-censorship, because there is a legitimate fear of being called out. At the same time, this is fueled by the wrong reason, which is the pride and is the desire to be liked. So we have two forces here that are at play together. And I think we could argue that if we brought back virtue and humility in society, we would not need to fear the first element because calling out would not be enough to destroy a person's reputation. And people would demand, well, show me, what did he do wrong? What did he do wrong?
1: Right. Well, and I also think that, you know, part of the problem here is... The cancel culture and the culture, the very distorted view, which sees, you know, words as violence and which sees any respectful disagreement as ipso facto offensive, right? That this kind of culture of disagreement as threatening, you know, akin to or even worse than threats of physical harm, that this makes the stakes so high when it comes to you know potentially saying something you know quote unquote wrong that you know goes against the new orthodoxies about things like race or gender or whatever it might be and that leads to the incredible fear i mean it's just unthinkable the things that people have lost their jobs over in recent years very mild <laughs> comments
0: you know, Which we are not going to repeat because we don't want you to lose your job. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you think that humility is possible within the social media world? Well, it's possible
1: anytime, right? Virtue is always possible because it's a matter of choice. And so I think, you know, the first step is to recognize that the, the social media world is a structure. And that structures incentivize or push us towards certain kinds of behavior, right? And so this is a a kind of social structure that if we're not careful, will tend to push us toward this aggressive, uncivil, vain behavior and away from the virtues of humility and civility and moderation, which are so important for Public discourse. So we need to be aware of that danger. That any time that we engage in the social media world, and there's good reason to engage in it, and be on those platforms and try to present one's views respectfully there, but we always need to be reminding ourselves that the point is not to win, quote unquote. It's not to achieve a victory. It's not to kind of score cheap points against the person that we disagree with. You know, with a nasty comment or an ad hominem attack. The point is to get to the truth of the matter. And that actually, if if we are proven wrong, as you know Socrates pointed out in, in the Gorgias, that when we're proven wrong in an argument, we've actually
0: gained more. I mean, even Stuart Mill says it. So, right, yeah. exactly. I mean, that makes me think that probably one of the least humble example then of posting to you on social media is when you find a like-minded group of people that you already know are going to like what you have to say. And then you spend a lot of time just, somehow preaching to the choir, but what you're making me think is that just an exercise of pride.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. People fan each other's flames. They say things in groups uh, where they presume everybody is like-minded that they would never say in groups where they thought there might be uh, somebody who had an opposing view. And then often say things that are quite uncharitable and that are not fully founded. Now, I think there's a place for groups where you can speak your mind freely without having to worry about self-censorship and, and things like that. But even in those groups, I think we ought to be careful to watch even in our thoughts, the way that we think about people we disagree with, because it can just be can just be easy to even in our heads try to score those easy points, you know, against the opponent. Instead of recognizing, hey, you know, I'm dealing with another human being here. They might be mistaken, but I can't, you know, I should presume, I should give them the benefit of the doubt that they have goodwill. I don't know where they're coming from on this. I don't know their full background. And so I need to consider that, okay, here's a human being who might be dead wrong, but still is human, you know, may not have all the facts, may have gone through certain experiences that led them to think this way. And so I need to take that into account and not just trash somebody you know, in my head or when talking to other like-minded people, but always exercise that virtue of humility and charity when dealing with people that I disagree with.
0: You're so right, Melissa. At least I I so much agree with you. I have a a final thought for i let you go and go back to the things you're writing that I'm excited to read. But I was recently reminded by a friend that maybe a lack of humility is also one of the causes why marriages break up. And the way he was talking about this was by pointing out how when we are corrected by our spouse, we might sometimes just accept that yeah, there is something we're doing wrong. Like, It's not all about, you know, let's discuss this through. But it's also, yes, I have to recognize that this is a limit. And would you agree that it can be a problem in a couple, a lack of humility?
1: I think it can certainly be a huge problem in a marriage. I mean, one of the ways that marriage challenges people and helps us to be better. I mean, I, I was recently married less than a year ago, so I, I certainly know how this is, is. You know, you have somebody who basically sees everything that you do in a way that you know you can't sort of hide those little vices <laughs> that uh, that were previously you know pretty private pretty hidden right that they know and they will sometimes call you out on it right and so it, it takes humility and it requires you know an effort to say you know what you're right about that you know i, I might not be able to change it right away i mean <laughs> this is how i am and i can improve but it's not going to be not going to be easy but but to admit it right and to say that you're that you're working on it Is okay. But but I also think that goes to maybe one of the deepest ways that humility is necessary for the ability to handle correction and to handle recognition that we're not perfect, which is that you know humility is ultimately, you know, resting on our recognition that we are our dignity is rooted not in what we can do, but in the fact that we are made in the image and likeness of God and infinitely loved. By God. And so that kind of bedrock sense of our worth, uh, stemming from our relationship to God and as unquestionable, uh, then also frees us to not be so worried about the fact that we're not perfect and that other people recognize that we are not perfect because we don't need to get our affirmation from other people, even from our spouse. Though of course, it's important that spouses affirm each other in, in many ways, but that our ultimate affirmation has to come from God and no human and, and certainly no number of likes on social media can ever satisfy that need for ultimate affirmation of the goodness of our being.
0: Yeah, I think that the message for a younger generation would be in a way, stop trying to be pleasers because right. you don't need to look for the opportunity. And I don't know if you grew up with this, but I remember something precious of probably my entire generation and people that were older, something my mom would tell me that is only those who love you correct you. Right. And it's so true. So please, you know, to anyone who's listening, if someone is correcting you, correcting you charitably, of course, they right. most likely love you and most likely like you because otherwise they wouldn't spend time doing it. And I think, you know, even as a professor, I'm sure you have this experience that you you have this, you know, maybe students that feel bad about being corrected when instead that's exactly the way you help them grow.
1: Right. I mean, it's much easier to just ignore things or just complain about people behind their back than to actually nobly and charitably talk to them about the things that bother and this is I think another issue with marriage is that sometimes people for fear of doing this or because it's hard to do this well, just don't bring up the issues that arise in the relationship and instead of you know kindly and charitably saying, you know hey, when you do this it really bothers me or you know I'm concerned about this pattern of behavior that you have, you know, passive aggressively ignore it or call attention to it in snarky ways and so on that don't actually address the issue in a constructive manner that also can create a climate that is very unhealthy in relationship.
0: I think we came to a very philosophically solid conclusion because we said that <laughs> virtue is necessary in our society. And now we're saying how all the virtues are necessary in marriage and yes. the family being the fundamental group unity of society. And so the origin of all publics. I think we made it pretty clear that there is nothing that is true about society that is not also true about the family being...
1: Absolutely, yes. Yes. The
0: origin of it. Well, Melissa, I want to thank you very much for um, the time you spent with us again. As I said, I hope you will be on our show once more to tell us more about the things you're writing and you're working on. But I really want to thank you very much for this. Oh, you're welcome. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Melissa, and have a great summer. Thank you, you too. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating, and please donate so we can do even more.